We are under attack. Behind the bright lights of the global stage, there lies a dark underworld most people know nothing about. People need to care what's happening inside of Putin's Russia because it's affecting all of us. The Soviet Union collapsed, set him off, and now he basically came back with revenge for everyone. This is Kremlin File. Hi, everybody. I'm Mo. And I'm Olga. We would like to thank everyone who listened to episode one. Thank you guys so much. I'm getting so much feedback thanking us for doing this series. And it's like, thank you for listening. Someone asked me like, oh, so what are these episodes going to be? I'm like, hmm. wherever Putin is, this is where we're going to be. And That's we're going to be showing what he's doing there. Yes. You can't be silenced. And the more people who voice their opinion, the more people who show the corruption, show the assassinations, investigate the corruption, I feel that... Being together as a big block protects everyone and gets the information out there. Let's jump into what is the situation right now that's unfolding in Belarus. Yeah, and for some background, last year, President Lukashenko of Belarus rigged the election. And since then, there has been a very harsh crackdown on protests that were unfolding. Streets and squares in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, have been sealed off tonight after a state-run exit poll suggested the country's authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, had won the general election by a wide margin. He's been president for 26 years and has been battling a wave of discontent over his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, the economy and human rights. I was watching the Olympics and one of the Olympic athletes, Kristina Tamanovskaya, had made a video that was slightly critical of the Belarusian Olympics Committee Mm -hmm. because they had wanted her to participate for something that she was improperly trained for. Kristina Tsimonuskaya went to the Tokyo Olympics with dreams of representing Belarus at the world's biggest sporting event. Sprinter says Belarusian officials tried to force her to fly home when she complained about being entered into a race she hadn't prepared for. They made it clear that upon my return home, I would definitely face some form of punishment. She then found refuge at the Polish embassy in Tokyo and was given a humanitarian visa. And the Russian Olympic Committee says it pulled Simonuskaya from competition because of her psychological state. After interrogating her and telling her that someone in her situation might commit suicide, they dragged her to the airport in Tokyo. She luckily was able to make a video on what was happening and saying that she fears for her life of going, you know, back to Belarus after what had just unfolded in her interrogation. Of course. And thank goodness at the airport, the Tokyo police got involved and then the embassy of Poland got involved and they basically... She's in Poland right now? She is in Poland, yes. Okay. And then at the same week as that was unfolding, Vitoli Shishov, another Belarusian activist last year fled to Ukraine. He was found hung on a tree in a Kiev park. Police in Ukraine say an activist from Belarus who runs an organization helping activists escape from Belarus has been found dead in a park in Kiev. Shishov had recently told friends and colleagues that he felt like he was being followed by strangers on his morning runs. The day after he was reported missing, his body was found hanging from a tree. And it, by all indications, looks like that the KGB of Belarus 
were responsible for the murder and did it as a signal to all Belarusians now living in exile yeah. that they're not safe anywhere. Can you imagine the fear that they're feeling now, Olga? Yeah, and it's nothing new. This is something that the Kremlin has done for, you know, forever. I mean, the KGB under the Soviet Union was tracking down dissidents yeah. and, you know, anyone who was cooperating with Western governments. You know, we all know of Alexander Litvinenko's poison. Litvinenko, not to be confused with Lukashenko. Former FSB operative Alexander Litvinenko was working with actually our next guest, Yuri Felshtinsky. He was working with him to expose Putin and the KGB blowing up the apartment buildings in 1999, which killed over 300 Russian citizens. And for that, he was poisoned with polonium which made international headlines on foreign soil. So, I mean, Livinenko was over a decade ago, and here we see the same exact methods. The KGB of Belarus is very much acting in line with how Russian security services work as far as silencing people at home and on foreign soil. Today, we're going to be welcoming Yuri Felshinsky. Hi, Yuri. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Welcome, Yuri. Thank you. So you started working with Litvinenko. I met Litvinenko in November of 98 when I came to Moscow, when a group of uh, FSB officers were preparing themselves for the famous press conference, when they uh, publicly came with with very damaging information against their superiors, generals of KGB, claiming that they were giving them criminal orders. He actually knew Putin as well. They met once before the press conference. Mm -hmm. And Litvinenko, by the way, was not impressed Mm -hmm. by that meeting. And he knew that something is wrong. He knew, of course, that this was a mistake, that this was a setup. And it was. Putin would use this press conference to uh, fire all those old KGB generals. The entire group was immediately fired from, from the FSB including Litvinenko, and Litvinenko spent 11 months in prison. Then he left, and by that time, of course, Putin was president, and I started to look into September 99 events. Two years and two days ahead of 9-11, two seconds before midnight, a quiet Moscow neighborhood was rocked by the sound of explosion. On this very spot stood an apartment building which was bombed, burying more than 100 people and peaceful life in the Russian capital under the rubble. It is remembered as bloody September. Over a period of two weeks, a string of terrorist attacks rocked Russia. More than 300 people died in a succession of blasts throughout the country. Almost 2,000 were injured and lost their homes. Military operations in the Caucasus had ended three years before, but by setting off bombs, the Chechen terrorists seemed to be sending a clear message. They were not ready for peace. After the whole country succumbed to fear, someone had to act. It was then that Russia's Prime Minister Vladimir Putin delivered a memorable phrase. We'll pursue the terrorists everywhere. If we catch them in the toilet, we'll waste them right there. Those who lost the loved ones in the initial bombing campaign still gather once a year to commemorate the dead. They say they will never feel safe. Alexei Roshevsky, RT. There were some suspicious stories around those terrorist acts, and I decided to look what actually, to try to find out what actually happened. The war in Chechnya has changed Russia's political landscape. 
brutal it may be, but it's also extremely popular. People see it as a just war against terrorism. For that reason, many voters have said they're prepared to rally behind Russia's government and the Prime Minister Vladimir Putin. As the Russian people went to the polls, the country's military commanders were delivering an ultimatum to the rebel leadership in Chechnya. They told them they must agree to an unconditional surrender or face annihilation. The Chechen conflict has overshadowed these elections, much to the relief of the Russian government. Instead of being punished by the voters for economic turmoil and corruption, it could well be rewarded for going to war. I came to conclusion that the, the terrorist acts were organized by the FSB. So I went to Litvinenko to ask if this is possible that leadership, Kremlin, would give an order to officers, right, to people like Litvinenko, to know what, what they demanded to kill 300 people. It's like an actual hit. Right. That's precisely how this would be done. They would get this order that the apartments would be blown, uh, and it doesn't really matter that it's in the middle of Moscow and how many people are killed wow. and who is killed. How many and, families, children, women. Yeah, they don't care. And Litvinenko, he actually told me that he simply knows who was able to organize this kind of operation. I mean, he, he knows who those people are, and he actually told me how to find them and how to find out how this was organized. Mm -hmm. The conversation took place in the middle of the night, uh, if I'm correct, and I asked him if he wants to finish this book together. And he said, well, but how, how do we do this? I mean, you're in Boston, I'm in Moscow, and, you know, I, I am under surveillance, which was true. He was under 24-hour surveillance. We were meeting in the middle of the night outside Moscow. We went into forest, you know. So <laughs> under the moonlight. <laughs> as careful, right, as possible. And he said, so how do we do this? And I said, well, what if you emigrate? What if you leave Russia? And he says, you know what? Let's do it. Wow. And he crossed the border a week later. I flew to Georgia, I picked him up, and one month uh, we moved from Georgia to Turkey because it, at one point it became dangerous to be in Georgia because uh, very soon the FSB, of course, knew that Litvinenko escaped. They started to look for him, and they knew that the only real connection between uh, him and the, the real world, especially outside this, this Russia, is me. So they started to look for me. And, how much wow, in danger did you feel? I have no idea how much in danger this was. But honestly, I have no idea. But whether this was dangerous or you not. You just did it. Yeah, you just, yeah, you just followed what you You followed what you had to do. Right. Uh, this was the, this first time and the last one. I was conducting kind of this James Bond operation, <laughs> but I was preparing myself for this difficult, you know, operation. Yeah. I was buying cell phones, you know, like you do people do in the movie. <laughs> really? Like a spy in, movie. In, yeah, in, exactly. Yeah, in, as then they didn't work, not a single one, the only one which was connected was my Russian telephone, <laughs> Russian telephone with the Russian telephone number. Yuri. And so all those KGB guys who were looking for Litvinenko and me, they were calling my Russian number, <laughs> you know, and and I was actually talking to them uh, first in Georgia, oh my. then in Turkey. I'm pretending, I was pretending that I'm in Boston. Meanwhile, you're through Turkey. Yes, it's, I have no idea where Litvinenko is. Where you is, are. But, right. So, 
from Turkey on 1st of November, uh, he landed in uh, London. After Litvinenko landed in London, after he started to live there, he became very outspoken. Besides a book, which was published in 2001 as a special issue in Moscow, besides the fact that we made a documentary based on the book, mm-hmm. in addition to this, Litvinenko became very outspoken and very critical of Putin. Mm-hmm. Litvinenko, I have to say, was a unique person. To have him as an enemy was extremely dangerous. He knew the system very well. He knew how to become personal. He knew how those particular generals, you know, with names and telephone numbers and addresses, I mean, he knew all of them. Uh, He had photographic memory. He remember all telephone numbers which ever crossed his Everything. Wow. Wow. And he he would uh, give interviews, for example, right after the immigration. He knew all those generals. He knew their weak spots. And he knew how to make his criticism very, very painful. And the mainstream very often would not, of course, publish him and, and talk to him. But he did not needed it because he did not appeal to public opinion of of the world. Mm -hmm. He knew how to hit a particular person given an interview to a small Chechen uh, immigre publication because he knew that this text will be on the table of that particular general the next morning. So he knew how to strategically get back at the Kremlin. Right. And I think at the end, they decided it's not possible to shut him down. He was effective at getting the information out and a threat to them. Right. He received his citizenship on 13th of October, 2006. Right. And he was poisoned on 1st of November. The only way to deal with him was to kill him. If you could tell us a little bit of what was happening during the collapse of the Soviet Union with the Russian intelligence services. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. The Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, now has his finger on the nuclear button. The collapse of the Soviet Union started uh, with the attempt of hardliners within the Communist Party to declare an emergency and to grab power, to take it out of hands of uh, Michael Gorbachev, considered to be a liberal and reformer in those days. He is the tricky part. This was an operation of the Soviet Special Services, known as KGB. We thought in August of 91 that these were communist hardliners who are trying to reestablish the power of the Communist Party. When at the end uh, they failed, Communist Party was abolished, and from outside the impression was that the democracy won in Russia that this was a major democratic victory over the Communist Party. And it was. But at the same time, it was a major victory of KGB because this was the day when the Communist Party lost control over KGB. 
Can you tell us about Dresden and what they were doing there and what Putin was doing there? There are two sides of this story about Dresden. Dresden is, of course, East Germany. East Germany traditionally uh, was the base for the Russian intelligence services because it was very close to the West. It was very close to the Western Germany. And then, of course, Western Germany was the major territory which the Soviet military and uh, Soviet special services were interested in. So when you need to infiltrate a particular country, right, you send your, your illegals abroad and they work there illegally, right? We call them sleepers or illegals. Putin uh, was working there as a whatever, person who was in charge of the uh, German uh, Soviet society, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, of course, he was working for KGB, but his official position was very civil. So on the one hand, of course, uh, you do not send your brightest illegals to, to East Germany. You try to send them to West Germany or to the United States. We could, of course, say that if Putin would be a real, you know, intelligent officer, they would try to send him to West Germany or to the United States. And this is true. But many important high-level KGB officers, like Evgeny Petabranov, for example, whom people usually do not know, that's how important he was, actually started to serve in, in East Germany. So East Germany is not the most terrible place for a KGB officer to be. Putin was involved in activity which traditionally would be done by first directorate of the KGB, which is kind of military intelligence mm. and active operations involving killings, bombings, bombings etc. At the same time, no one knew, quote-unquote, about Dresden until '91, when the Soviet Union collapsed. He came back, as well as all those other people who were working abroad. They had to find new positions for themselves. We are talking about active reserve officers. Mm. No one was informed that these are KGB officers who are sent to work with you in a particular institution or publishing house or TV channel or radio station. All of them were working there secretly. And of course, they were trying to take the best positions, the highest positions. And very soon, all deputy editors, vice presidents of banks, vice directors of institutions, all of them were from KGB. By the time when August of 91 happened, everything was literally occupied by KGB. Mm. And again, also private citizens, which were recruited by KGB. This is all quote-unquote secret. And this is the difficult part for everybody. You are somebody, you are a promising young professional. At one point, you are approached and you are told that if you want to proceed, if you want your career to be developed, you have to agree to work for KGB. Mm. If you do not agree, we will ruin you. It is really very, very difficult to find a person who is well known to us and who was not recruited by KGB. Mm. And the recruitment very often is not just a formal recruitment. You usually really develop relations 
with those people who are recruiting you. Can you give us an example of something like that? Let me start with uh, some major ones. Almost all of Russian uh, Orthodox Church leadership was recruited. Yevgeny Yevtushenko, a major Soviet, later Russian poet. Uh, Vladislav Listev, a famous Soviet TV personality, editor, person who was in charge of major Russian programs. Podvirovskin, a Russian politician who at one point was trying to be the president of Russia, was recruited when he was a student. If you are a sportsman who are interested in going abroad, of course, it's a good opportunity for KGB to recruit you. Otherwise, you know, you would not be able to travel abroad. Wow. Okay. We are talking about major infiltration of the okay. society. Okay. Now, there are several major photographs which reflects the story of August 91. One, of course, is Boris Yeltsin, who is uh, appealing to the crowd, yeah. uh, standing on a, on a tank, uh, on oh. a tank, yeah, or, uh, yeah, armored car. Behind him, we see Alexander Kurzakov who was in charge of Yeltsin's security from day number one. Hmm. Now, the same day, Anatoly Sobchak gives his speech in St. Petersburg, and there is a person standing behind him, and that person is Vladimir Putin. My point is this. The democratic revolution just started. This is the first day of the Russian democratic revolution. It's a major victory. You know, all hardliners uh, are defeated and arrested and put in prison. But already in that day number one, you have KGB concentrated around all major Democrats there. and they have everything under their control. Wow. Yuri, I have one question just to finish off on St. Petersburg. Many people in the West see mafia as, as you know, how it's glorified with Italian mafia and movies and, you know, and, it, and that it's a separate entity. First of all, what was the relationship with between the KGB in St. Petersburg and the mafia in St. Petersburg at the time. How close was Putin to both? Well, clearly he was KGB. How close was he with the mafia? How closely did they work? And, and how much did it impact what's happening today there? Well, if we agree that the KGB infiltrated all levels of Soviet society, then, of course, we have to agree that KGB infiltrated criminal circles as well. Mm-hmm. Now, with the development of market economy, when a lot of money appeared and many opportunities to earn those money appeared for, for the first time in the Soviet history, criminal world became a major instrument for enrichment. We are talking about, again, a country which had no laws because Soviet laws could not be applied to contemporary situations, right? No one paid taxes. And by not paying taxes, all of them were, technically speaking, criminals. Law enforcement did not exist, not only as an instrument for the state to collect taxes and to keep the order, but also did not exist as a structure which supposed to be responsible for safety of people 
including safety of businesses. In the law enforcement agencies, all businessmen were criminals and crooks, and they actually see him that way. In other words, a businessman would not uh, risk a chance to go for protection to law enforcement because they will be first to take all his money and to put him in prison because he probably, you know, broke the law 10 times yeah. a day. Or they let him Just, accumulate the wealth and then imprison him and take everything. Yeah, and take all his money away. Right. So it's a battle which you cannot win. win. You're a businessman, right? You try to survive. You try to earn some money. There are some opportunities. The government will not defend you. The law enforcement will not defend you. So you very often uh, try to find some help from criminals. Mm. But unfortunately, people do not understand and never understood that the criminal world is connected to both the government and KGB, that all serious important criminals of Russia are under direct control of KGB, very often are agents of KGB, and they're alive as long as KGB wants them to be alive. Uh, You do not usually see it this way. You think that criminal world exists independently and that uh, with those gangsters you would be able to find common language. Some people think that you might come common language with KGB or with law enforcement officers, but one way or another, you are looking for 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 a cover. You are looking for for the roof, uh, what was called in Russia, Krisha. Krisha. <laughs> right. For How the do you roof, say it? Krisha. Krisha is in, in Russian, and this is uh, the roof. Basically, you need a roof. KGB might be the roof, uh, law enforcement, militia, internal security might be the roof, Mm. or criminals might be the roof. It's very difficult to say uh, who would be better for your business, Mm. honestly. And very often you have difficulties to figure out what is your roof, because everything starts to be interconnected. They think that, well, I met a person from that particular organized crime group with whom I was talking like uh, a week ago in connection with another case. I might approach them and ask them for help. So they start to to cooperate. Oh, wow. And with with time, it's very difficult actually to say who is a gangster and uh, who is law enforcement. Oh, wow. But once again, when we are talking about serious criminal world and serious organized crime, we should not think that they exist independently. They do exist as long as the state security wants them to exist and as long as they are under their control. Because every political movement, every nationalist movement, every fascist movement, any of these kind of movements either were born as a KGB project or were taken or hijacked by KGB on a very early stage. Wow. The level of infiltration of KGB into the life of the Soviet country was huge. And this continued after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
when when Soviet Union existed, this was all secret. Now it's basically the same as done in open. It's out in the open. Now you could say, wow. yes, I'm, wow. you know, in the Soviet Union, it was a shame to say I'm KGB. People at least would be surprised probably decides that it's better not to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, if you say that, I, well, I was recruited by KGB, it's, it's like an achievement. Yeah. yeah. So we already talked that the country is basically a mafia slash KGB state. Putin kind of organized it in that way. But before Putin came to power, there was an incident that used one of their very, very important tactics. And that was the Skudatov case where the prosecutor was investigating. Putin at the time was head of FSB. The prosecutor was investigating Yeltsin and suddenly a grainy sex tape appears on TV, destroys this prosecutor's life, the Mako investigation finished. And then Putin, as head of FSB, comes out and basically, you know, says, yes, uh, this tape is authentic. And and that's it. How important is that using that kind of compromise? And were they only using it for internal reasons or did they start exporting it to the West and trying to get as much compromise that they can on leaders, politicians, anyone of influence, basically? Well, this was an old trick, right? Uh, the compromise. Mm-hmm. And it's usually money or sex. It's very easy to catch a fish uh, using this compromise. And everybody who looked at that tape has no doubt that this was Kuratov uh, with two beautiful girls. Exactly. It was so grainy. And it was only Putin who came out and legitimized and it. it and right. Said, but you do not need Putin to confirm this. <laughs> this yeah. was, this exactly. was obvious for, for everybody. But uh, the important part is this. Yeltsin, of course, was trying to keep his power. There were a lot of forces in Russia who wanted to take him down. Russian parliament those days was kind of independent. And now it is not. And... The general prosecutor was investigating corruption within uh, Yeltsin's circles and Yeltsin's family. Uh, again, I have to say that, number one, Russia is a corrupt country. Everybody knows this. Uh, the corruption is a nature of, of Russia, is one of the major problems of both Russia and the as a state and Russians as, as people. Everybody broke the law. And if you apply a judicial system selectively, then you could easily build a case against anybody. So if you give Skuratov an order to build a case against Yeltsin or members of his family, I'm sure it was possible. And I'm sure that it would look in, 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 in a court like a real case. The only issue was that this was a political case and the investigation was conducted not for economic reasons, but for political reasons. Like in August of 91, when you have Vladimir Krychkov, the chairman of KGB, organizing a putsch, and at the same time, you have other officers of KGB, like Korzhakov and Putin, uh, securing the well-being of uh, Yeltsin and Sobchak, who are leaders of the democratic movement. So that KGB uh, is working on two fronts. It's a win-win. In any case, they would win. 
either if Khrushchev would win, then KGB would be in, in charge. Yeah. If Yeltsin wins, KGB is still in charge. That's how they tried to position themselves. Wow. As we see, they actually succeeded. Because from 91 until 99, when Putin came to power, well, 2005, and during those nine years, we have to say there were several attempts of the uh, Russian special services to take control. Of course, August 91 is number one. Then this was uh, an event of October 93, when the Russian parliament, which again was heavily infiltrated by KGB on the level of thousands and thousands of people. Uh, KGB even created a special school for KGB officers who would compete for seats in the Russian parliament through election. So you have a lot of Russian deputies who are members of the Russian parliaments who are either KGB agents or, more importantly and more often, officers of active reserve who came to serve as members of the Russian parliament, working at the same time for KGB. Wow. Because of this, you see sometimes the same people working against each other, but but indeed, they're working together. They have the same goal. Same. same goal. They have to deliver power to KGB. October 93 uh, is an episode when the uh, Russian parliament, uh, infiltrated by KGB, was trying to take down Yeltsin. They failed. Prior to elections of 96, Boris Yeltsin was so unpopular that Korshakov actually told him that the only way to survive is to postpone elections or to cancel elections and to rule by decree. Korshakov's idea was that if Yeltsin starts to rule by decree, very often he would have to leave the post. And in this case, there were three people who were already prepared to take power. This attempt also failed because oligarchs approached Yeltsin and explained to him that he will be ruined and you know would lose power if he goes this way and that he should take his chance to go through elections. Yeltsin went through elections and won victory. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, 99 events when uh, Yeltsin uh, retired on 31st of December, giving power to Putin as acting president, and then Putin became president. Even this demonstrated the way KGB was preparing the operation, because uh, Yeltsin had three candidates for presidency. Uh, Putin was, uh, ironically, the last one, number three. In other words, there were three cards on the table in front of Yeltsin. He could choose uh, any card. The problem with those cards was that all of them were from KGB. You could choose anyone you want, but the power at the end would be given to the FSB as institution. And that's precisely what happened. Once again, and I think this is very important, if you see the events of 91 as the first attempt of KGB to grab power from the Communist Party and to uh, win absolute control over the country, mm -hmm. that it took them only nine years to fulfill this goal. Yeah. yeah. Since this worked in 2000 in Russia, they 
quickly realized that the same tactic could work in some other countries. We do this everywhere. <laughs> Let's just export it. In some cases, we just even do not know about this. In some cases, they failed. In some cases, we know that they managed to do this successfully. In the Czech Republic, they've done it with two presidents, first with Klaus and then with Zeman. In Hungary, of course, this is Orban. How about Italy, Yuri? I'm in Siena, Italy. Then in Italy, we are talking about Salvini and the Northern Alliance. Mm-hmm. And Salvini, of course, you may call him puppet, mm-hmm. you may call him smart politician, but he is using Russian money mm-hmm. and in exchange for this, uh, he is delivering Russian influence uh, in, into Italian politics. But this is a point. You try to conquer one position. But this should be a position of the president or the, top the position. prime minister, the top position. Now, Yuri, one last question quickly before we wrap up. You know Russia, you know the Russian intelligence services, you know Putin. What do you think about Trump? Does Putin own Trump? Thanks, Olga. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so I went to Oleg Kalugin, a, a Russian general, a Soviet general who uh, softly emigrated to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I went to see him and to, to talk to him precisely about Trump. And we had a very long interview about Trump only. And he was telling me that when he uh, was in charge of St. Petersburg Department uh, or KGB. Uh, yeah. He was deputy. Of, he's seen the documents from a reading of which he realized that this was Trump. But there was no name because names are never there. You do not need the proof that Trump was recruited. This, this, this is not the point. You look at all other things. The actions. Yeah, yeah, right. With Trump, we do not actually need to spend our time and energy to try to prove uh, that uh, he was recruited recruited in, in, whatever, in 70s. Mm-hmm. But you just start to see what we know, right, beginning in 2007, when the economic crisis started. You see a major investment of Russian money. Well, the Russian money is flowing to us. And this is confirmed by by Trump himself. This is confirmed by his son. Michael Cohen was given interview, I think, to MSNBC. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that Trump told him that he knows that it's Putin who is ordering all Russian oligarchs to invest money into his businesses. Wow. Yeah. And not only here in U.S., but here, Kazakhstan, Toronto. I mean, so we are talking about a person who knows that Putin is investing money into him. Yuri has looked. I have looked. Right. It always goes back to oligarchs and oligarchs that are close to the Kremlin. Right. But that's again, Putin's idea is that he's trying to build a structure which would rule the world as a union of authoritarian leaders. Salvini in relation to Italy, Le Pen in France, Trump in the United States, uh, Orban in Hungary. That's that's what he is doing. Some people love Putin because he appeals to them as a person who wants to recreate the Soviet Union. And some love him because he wants to destroy democratic world. 
So Yuri, you are actually coming back. Because you're like a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. People need to know this. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com, and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is Season 1, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> Cut. Standing ovation. We do have to get back to work. <laughs>